All right, welcome to uh, another COVID-19 special episode of the All The Things ADHD podcast. All the things! Uh, I am, what was that? I'm just laughing. Oh, okay. <laughs> I am uh, one of your co-hosts, Lee scalarope Bissett. Uh, and I am another one of your co-hosts, Amy Morrison. <laughs> oh, so how have you been? How's how's this past week been for you? I think this past week um, has been going slightly more smoothly for me than the first week. I think maybe I'm getting used to our new normal at the same time as my work from home colleagues, also known as my husband and my daughter, have also been settling into their groove as well. So uh, I'm feeling pretty good this week. How about you? Good. Uh, about the same. I was just actually writing about that, how we've all so sort of settled into this normal to this routine. And, you know, we're learning how to be around each other 24 uh, seven. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I keep telling people my husband is, uh, is increasingly happy every day that he bought himself a motorcycle for Christmas. Uh, so you're saying like when he has to, he's just like going to run away from all of you. Like, and by run away, I mean, roll away at high speed on a motorbike. He, he does so daily. Um, pretty right. much. Uh, he just, right. um, you know, puts the, puts the helmet and all the protective gear on, um, and socially isolates on the, on a highway at high speeds, which I love you know, it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah, no, exactly. Like it's, it's when it's nice, he's released, it's been raining here the past couple of days. And so it hasn't been as nice, but I, I imagine today there will be a ride um, that takes place because the sun is out again. So that's, that's good. So that is yeah, good. We're, we're, we're coping, you know, <laughs> sun still almost kind of got tired of playing video games at one point last what? week, but he got over it. He's, he's fine. He's back on. <laughs> That's good. I've started homeschooling my daughter this week. Um, and it's really interesting to me. Can I tell you about that, Lee? Oh, yes, please do so. <laughs> so my daughter doesn't really like school very much. She finds it stressful socially, and she finds it kind of overwhelming in a sensory way. And she finds it sort of both, as she says, everything goes too fast and too slow at the same time and there's this kind of like profusion of softwares and teachers and everybody's always like switching everything around and she never seems to know what's happening and she has a fairly negative attitude about it and um, what I'm finding uh, my main goal as her teacher for however long I happen to have her at home I wanted her to stop uh, hating school so much or at least if she was going to still hate school I wanted her to not associate that with hating learning right yeah and so I've been trying to find ways to um, produce kind of age appropriate um, but suitably challenging activities for her to do that are more about I want you to do this hard thing and not about I need you to be sitting in a chair for six hours a day doing the five subjects at school you would regularly be doing and and so we're doing like bursts she maybe gets two hours of work done a day and I'm like instead of you know assigning her worksheets for her English pick three drawings out of her sketchbook as you characters in manga uh, and I said you have to write a paragraph on um, about um, what you like about them and what your artistic choices were and she was like <laughs> texting me a little while later she's like is 1,000 words enough right <laughs> it's like um 
yeah. And she was like in her room, like chortling and chuckling. And she's like, I had a great time, mom. Maybe I don't hate writing. And I was like, oh my God, what are they doing to you at school? Right. And, uh, you know, some of the grammar and the spelling was off. She's like, oh, I'm a terrible, you know, speller. And I'm like, yeah, you are. And then we worked on using the computer tools to help with spelling. And, you know, I was able to praise like the liveliness of her narrative voice and her sense of audience and the dynamism of some of her writing. And we had a great time. Right. Yeah. And we did it for an hour and a half and that was her day. Right. So um, I'm, I'm wondering how many um, of our neurodivergent parents with their neurodivergent um, offspring are going to find um, the potential for a little bit of grace and self-accommodation here, right? Instead of like being like, did you see that Israeli mom who <laughs> did the video about homeschooling is going to kill me, right? Because yeah. all the video and like all the crazy expectations of all the teachers and I'm just like, yeah, nah, fam, I'm good. I'm just going to find out what the curricular objectives are and I'm just going to teach it my own way. I'm not going to do the busy work that the school sends and I'm not going to like download the 10 hours of lessons. I'm just not because I'm pretty sure that my kid could benefit from a different way of approaching the curriculum. And so far, it's been really heartwarming for both of us, actually. Um, so she comes out of this a little bit behind in terms of the curriculum, but a little bit ahead in terms of self-esteem as a learner and as a smart person, then I will consider that worth however many days we had to spend locked up in here with each other. Yeah. No, that's a really like I'm 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 already thinking about that because we've uh, I, I have to say I appreciate what our school district has done is because everything happened so quickly um, and we didn't have any snow days this year. Um, <laughs> they were just like, well, because so we have we have the slack in the schedule. Right. Like right, we have all of right. these days that we're sort of like, well, we have these extra days in case we have to cancel because, uh, you know, an inch of snow fell um, right. in, in northern Virginia. Uh but then, um, so when all of this happened, uh, because it happened again so quickly, uh, they weren't able to distribute laptops and they weren't able to uh, accurately and adequately assess the technological um, and infrastructural needs that um, individual students may or may not need. Um, mm -hmm. So they're just like, you know what, we're taking a month off. Oh, good. Yeah, no, oh, we good. just, they, they take a month off and they're like, yep, so, uh, you know, spring break is, I think, in two weeks or something. It's like the week of Easter. It's either just before right. or just after Easter. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going to have a, a teacher ped day. That'll probably be done at distance. But, like, Monday right after spring break will be teacher ped day. And then um, then we will start online learning. And by then, we're, well, you should have, you know, we'll... A plan. Yeah, a plan, right? Exactly. Like there'll be a plan. And it was also sort of waiting to see what the state would do. And so the state has mm -hmm. had finally declared that schools are not going to reopen this year and then leaving it and empowering the individual districts to decide how they're dealing with it. And some, some aren't going back to school at all. Some yeah. are just like, you know what, like we're done. We'll just, we'll just, you know, make it up uh, at the uh, beginning of next year. Um, yeah. You know, you know, I think it's becoming apparent to, you know, people who are engaging in this at home that, you know, there's really not every day six and a half hours of curriculum to be taught. Do you know what I mean? Like a lot yeah. of a lot of what happens uh, during the school day is about 
um, socializing and sort of practicing skills, not necessarily just learning them, or it may be about, you know, participating in different kinds of activities or like making sure that everybody, you know, all 20 kids or 30 kids in a class are sort of at the same place at the same time or listening to other kids make presentations, right? But if you were going to have an individual teacher for each individual child, which is like sort of the space we find ourselves in um, yeah. as parents right now, um, it may not actually take that long any day, any given day, to get through the things that you need to teach. And in that way, I think we do have the opportunity to teach our children some great skills about it's not how long you spend doing something, right? <laughs> this isn't like oh no my son's already figured that out but <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean I, I don't want to <laughs> right. yeah I mean I also I don't want to say like you know speed through everything because it doesn't matter right and I also don't want to yeah. say if you get through something faster it's better I mean there are some tasks that I undertake that take me probably longer than they take other people to do and some tasks that I do that take me way shorter than other people to do but it's yeah. kind of unfair um, to make everybody adhere to a timeline of task completion um, that is kind of unitary, right? Yeah. So if my daughter takes longer to read things, but she's fast at absorbing stuff from videos, then like we're going to work to build some skills in one area, but also recognize that she doesn't have to spend as long doing the other stuff because she's already got the material covered, right? And and I think this is a good lesson for us to learn um, as, as university teachers as well too, right? That mm -hmm. sometimes it's not, you know, the timed exam that's going to demonstrate mastery. Some people are faster, some people are slower, and sometimes it's not always, you know, a number of contact hours on the discussion board that's going to indicate um, a level of learning, right? Some of these are just proxy measures, and some of these are sort of items of convenience that we use to organize our classes into credit hours, right? Mm -hmm. Or to, you know, assess some people as better than other people. But if we're really just focusing on, there's a set of materials or skills that I need people to learn over this period, and we gave them a lot more freedom about how and when and how long to spend on those tasks as long as they could demonstrate mastery. Well, I think everything would be easier for all of us all of the time, wouldn't yeah. it? Well, and I, I actually came to that conclusion um, when I a uh, long time ago when I was teaching freshman writing is that like, I'm like, look, I'm not going to take attendance. I, I said, you know, deadlines are more for you than they are for me. They're arbitrary, but they're also they're partially arbitrary, but are also partially thinking about progress and scaffolding and, and workload and, and expectations. But I mean, I had students and everybody was like, oh, well, you're too soft on them. And it mm. was, just, and, I, and, and I'm like, well, look, I've, I've led it up to students where I've told them, look, the only deadline that I really have to adhere to is when grades are due, right? Right. You have right up until yeah. probably 24 hours before that deadline to get me the work. And I've had students who have been like, you know, can I get you all of my work? At, during the last week. And I said, yes. And they're like, why are you letting him do that? I said, look, if they're able to produce essays, because it's a writing class, right. that are of good enough quality, right. without having taken my course, then fine. They, they met the learning outcomes, right? Like right. they wrote yeah. a really good argumentative or decent argumentative essay without yeah. coming to class. Like, okay, like I'm not in the, the you know punishment business now nine times out of 10, they don't because they haven't done no. scaffolding and the work and all Absolutely. that kind of stuff. But, yeah. Yeah. but you know, my attitude is for that, that one or two students who can, and I, I'll, I'll freely admit that I was that student when I was an undergraduate um, right. and took advantage of, of that. Um, 
you know, I, I just, I'm like, you know what, if they can write four essays in five days that meet the minimum requirement for passing my course, then I'm going to pass them. Wow. That's pretty radical. -y. I don't know if it, I would go quite that far. I mean, do you think that, um, like in retrospect, is that the way, I mean, that you, you think you would have preferred to do that work yourself? Or was that maybe a function of some of your untreated ADHD? Like, did you find that stressful? Did you suffer any kind of like, like shame or unhappiness about what you were producing there? Um, well, it was, it was more along the lines of like, I, you know, like for some of my, and these were particularly for writing classes that I would do when I was an undergraduate is that like, I just, it, it was, it was partially like not, it was partially the ADHD, right. Where it was mm -hmm. just like, I don't care about these writing assignments and I cannot bring myself to do them. Right. Um, but then when it was finally like, oh, I'm like seven assignments behind, <laughs> I should probably right. do this. Right. And I would sit down you, and do them. And, and it was, but, it, but again, I, there was a little bit of shame to it, but at the same time, right. I was just like, I, I like, it's like, I get it. And these are the learning outcomes and I have to take this class because it's a required class for what I'm doing, but oh my God, like, it's just, I can't. And part of it was also just the way, um, uh, Sherbrooke, Université Sherbrooke, where I did my undergraduate degree, and I don't know if it's the same, and it wouldn't surprise me if it, it was still the same, because higher education never changes, is that <laughs> Sherbrooke, um, you basically had all of your classes, didn't matter what level you were at, first year, senior, graduate, you had, your class was three hours once a week. Oh my God, that sounds and, awful. And it was, and it was in chunks too. Like everyone was on the same schedule. So you had the 830 to 1130 class and then the university basically shut down for lunch for an hour and a half. <laughs> You're um, on the seriously. European model. <laughs> oh yeah, no, totally European model. So like 1130 classes were over and you had a half an hour if you needed anything administrative done because at right. 12 o'clock the campus shut down. Boom. Um, yeah. And then there was the one to four block the four to seven block and then the seven to 10 block. This is making me very sad, Lee. Yeah. I, th I think what, what we've begun to talk about, which I think would be a great way to focus this episode today is how to, um, how to have structures that are structured enough to prevent people from falling through the cracks, but open enough to allow people the kind of agency um, and freedom to succeed both according to their talents and their constraints, right? Like, so, you know, having a class that is only ever going to be in a three hour block, right, is, is not very flexible. No. But then, you know, and we could see like some people just can't sit still for that long, right? Um, I like to teach in 80 minute blocks. Um, you know, some of my other colleagues, they like to teach in the 50 minute blocks and I can't. That's too many potential meetings that I would miss and too many things I'm going to be late for. And so it suits me better, you know, to teach in this one particular way. And it suited me similarly when I was a student, right? Um, and so that allowed me some choice. Um, but then sometimes when we have too much choice, like you don't have to come to class, right? And you can hand in every assignment from the entire year in the last week, if you want, is perhaps for some people, not enough structure right? Yeah. So yeah. how can we design? I mean, it could be very stressful for the instructor too. Like, can you imagine if you got like, you know, in a class of, of 30 students, if even 10 of them tried to hand in seven things in the last week, right? Which is oh, not I know. unheard of. 
especially when you teach general education courses, which are not courses that people are taking for their major, right? Yeah. So we have to like bear in mind things need to be flexible enough for the instructor, right? And structured enough and flexible and structured enough for the students as well. If only, Lee, there was a branch of learning that could help us sort out these questions. <laughs> hmm. I don't know. And I'd, I'd really, and, and part of this is, is also around this discussion and, and um, around how do I, how are we going to format the days is, is this is actually really pressing for me because when we do move to these online uh, content delivery or distance delivery or however else it's, you know, my daughter will be fine. She'll, she's sort of self-motivated and a rule follower and you tell her to do something and she'll sort of grudgingly do it in her own way. Um, whereas my son, I know it's going to be like, it, it's just, he, he already sees, like I said, like my, my son, again, classic ADHD is that if it's something he enjoys doing, he will focus on it and he will invest as much time as he wants and, and can handle, which is, you know, infinite, right? Like the hyper-focus. Mm -hmm. right. But if it's something he's not interested in, like, I mean, it, it, it's like worksheets. So it's like worksheets are sort of like this compromise space. It's like, okay, we all agree we have to do the worksheet. And if you get to do the worksheet, and so he just tries to get through the worksheet as quickly as possible. Well, um, that's not learning, is it? Though? No, no, but, but it's the, but again, like, so that's why it's sort of like, He's, he's learned it and I want him to just make sure like looking at it because I'll, I'll sort of do it with him in so far as like make sure that as he gets through it, it's, it's more like practice, particularly math, right? It's practice. Right. You know, right. Do, do you remember how to do this? You learned it today at school. Oh yeah, I remember that. Or if I, he says, well, I don't know how to do this. And then I'll be like, well, do this. And he's like, well, that's not what they said in school. And I said, well, then you do know how to do this. Could you just like, I don't know. I haven't been in fifth grade in 30 years or 40 years. Like what? I don't like, um, but, but now it's kind of like, well, what are can, they going to tell you what, what we're doing for math right now? I would tell, tell me. Yes. Yeah. Hold on a so what we're doing for math is I've just found this resource um, offered through the University of Waterloo. It's their Center for Education in Math and Computer Science. And every day they put out a curriculum level appropriate math problem. So oh, nice. the thing my daughter did yesterday for the grades um, seven and eight worksheet was um, uh, a honeycomb problem. So it's like a series of hexagons all linked together, kind of like a puzzle. Mm -hmm. And each hexagon has a number in it between zero and six indicating the number of other hexagons it is touching that have honey in them, right? And so you have to, it's kind of a puzzle where you have to mm. solve for which of the 30 hexagons has honey and which of them does not have honey. And it has to do with counting edges, right? Um, yeah. And it's complicated because you're like, well, how do I know? This one says it two, it's touching two of them that have honey in it, but which two? Because it's touching six, right? So like it's it's about figuring out how to begin the problem and then solving it. And she was so excited that she asked for another one after she did it. And the what? worksheet the day before, again, this is for the grade seven and eight curriculum mm -hmm. in Ontario. It was um, a cross number puzzle. So it's like a crossword, but with numbers, right? And the mm -hmm. clue problems, right? But some of them are dependent, like some of them will be like, you know, 14 down is um, the square root of one across, right? So again, oh. here you have to figure out which ones you, so it's like way harder than yeah. a regular worksheet with like yeah. 50 different, you know, fraction multiplications in it, but it treats them like they are smart enough to solve a complicated problem. And the sense of accomplishment she had 
when she got through this, I'm like, well, you have to do half an hour of math today. And she did like 90 minutes of math because she just could not stop with this cross number puzzle. And it was hard, right? She's like, some of them were hard. And then I had to skip them. But then I came back and I finished it. And like, this is a kid that hates school, right? And she was like, did they have any more worksheets today, mom? But the worksheets are not just this kind of repetition of a rote skill, it's like the skill in the wild, right? Like you need everything you've learned so far in six months of grade eight to get through this cross number puzzle, right? Mm -hmm. And she loves it. It's like it gets challenging, right? And it doesn't kind of insult their intelligence by saying, I need you to repeat, you know, 20 different times, basically the same algorithm that I told you and that you wrote down, right? So just apply, 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 apply. Um, yeah. So she asks for help with ones she gets stuck on, right? And it's, it's more interesting and it feels less kind of coercive, right? Because it has its yeah. own sort of intrinsic motivation to it. I mean, once you start a puzzle, you want to finish it, right? Yeah. But like once you start a worksheet, you want to throw yourself off a building. That's yeah. That's the difference. Yeah. For me. No, and that's and and that's sort of what I'm what yeah, me too. I mean, that's sort of the kind of negotiations that I'm I'm interested to to see and to kind of work through with our son because I mean, literally all he wants to do is play video games. And we've pretty right. much let him do that right now because it's like I mean, what else am I going to make him do, you know, that doesn't involve him complaining about it incessantly to me while I'm trying to record podcasts and do webinars and <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, like faculty. I'm, yeah. I'm really with faculty, and he's like, "Well, I don't." You know, I, I don't. We're, we're balancing competing access needs here, is what you're saying, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So no, and, and so I, I, but I think that this is, and and we touched a little bit on it. Um, we're actually following up a conversation that we had with the conversation that we promised we would have the next week, which is like, how do we how do we rethink, how do we redesign our systems, particularly in education, um, to, to better meet the needs of our learners, but also I think of us too, as our educators, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I left this in response to somebody's something on Facebook somewhere, which I can't remember now, but they were talking about like uh, developing uh, a broader sort of rollout of accessible design and universal design strategies for pedagogy and, and people are like, well, you know, it's a lot of work. And I was like, well, you know, the thing is like everything that I've ever implemented from kind of inclusive or equitable or accessible or universal pedagogy has been to benefit me. Like, honestly, like yeah. I became interested in accessible teaching and learning because as a disabled faculty member, I was really struggling with some of mm -hmm. the normal ways of teaching and assessing. Um, and I found this was like kind of um, exacerbated when I, I won that big fellowship last year that makes me do a lot of traveling, which mm -hmm. and sometimes that traveling is not, I don't get a lot of notice about it, which means I was like having to skip classes or cover classes. And it, it just added a whole other layer of chaos to my general struggle to stay on top of my teaching and my grading. And, and over the years, I've been working on finding ways to meet the course objectives, but in a way that didn't break me, right? Yeah. Uh, and as it turns out, that's made my courses a lot more accessible to students, right? So, I mean, one of the things, you know, that I did was I do collaborative note-taking in class. So yeah. I don't write lecture notes, right? I have a skeleton agenda of what I'm going to do in class. And then I riff because mm -hmm. I am an improv teacher, right? I know yeah. what I'm talking about. I'm mm -hmm. not going to write it down. I don't have to. But when students miss class, they're always emailing me, like, do you have notes? And I'm like, no, no. Right. And then I don't answer their emails and then they get mad at me and then they don't have the notes and then I feel terrible and they feel terrible and everybody feels terrible. But I outsourced the note taking to 
a group work exercise among my students. They work like in groups of three or four for the entire term. It's stable. They're assigned specific days where they have to take notes in a Google Doc about what happens in class, right? And I, in the Google Doc, I seed it with my skeleton outline and then they fill it in as we go. <laughs> and then when we do group work in class, the groups put their reports into the Google Doc as well. So A, I don't have to write it down or remember mm -hmm. it. So if I'm yeah. going at the end of the term to be like, what can I put in my like you know final exam or whatever, if I'm having it, there's like a, this great set of notes about what actually happened in class, which I wouldn't have, right? No. Otherwise. No, exactly. And, and, yeah. And any student who misses class, um, they don't have to email me asking for notes, right? Yeah. They don't even have to disclose to me anything. They can just go into our courseware site and every class meeting has a Google Doc with all of the notes of everything that happened, right? That's so and great. The group work that we do in class, like often, you know, you used to do this thing where like seven groups and they do it and like every group would get like one minute to report. And it was just like, oh my God, the dullest thing in the world. I just yeah. get one group to report every time, but everybody has to put their reports in the shared Google Doc, which means they take the group work seriously. Um, and it's like massive parallel processing, right? It'll be like five groups working on five different problems at the same time. We'll discuss one problem in depth, but the other four problems, right, are listed in the Google Doc. And again, that gives me a great set of resources for the next time I teach the course, or it helps me remember what I did if I'm constructing like an exam or some essay questions. Um, and the students are largely freed from the bottleneck that is me when they're mm -hmm. asking for what did we do in class, right? Yep. So that was like a win 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 and it teaches them independence as well right and it also means like i was gone one of my uh, substitute teachers um she was showing some she had traveled internationally and came to class showing some symptoms of respiratory infection but three oh, students Lord. had to do presentations so she kicked all the other students out and said well the three students could give presentations to her and then the three students that were the group that was supposed to be note-taking said can we come in too and then we'll take notes for everybody Oh. Right. So that was this kind of amazing way that they took ownership over their learning environment. Right. Yeah. The way that they just stepped in and offered that. Right. And to have this idea where like, oh, we have we have an instructor who's a substitute who may be sick and none of you should be here, but somebody has to do the presentations. Thank God we have group note taking like that was not something I planned for. Right. No. But it turned out that that, that system is so generous and flexible that it actually can respond to a number of different crises and still work, right? Without yeah. anybody having to do petitions or anybody having to go through some type of bottleneck or um, things having to be postponed or canceled or any of that, right? It just kind of rolled because it was a really open way of getting things done. And the getting things done was distributed across a big enough number of people that if a small number of people couldn't do it, the task could still continue. Yeah. No, that and I sense? think that that's, yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And it makes me think of a story because I'm the same way as you. Like I have like, mm. oh, here's the three things I'm going to talk about today. And then like that I had to do, I was asked in my current job, they're like, could you do a lesson plan or a, a like a lecture outline? Nope. And I put like three things down. I said, do this, then do that, then talk about this, then do that. And my boss was like, is she serious? And I was like, yeah, has she never done a lesson plan before? And I'm like, yeah, that's how I do my lesson plan. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they were like, she's, so she had to find a model for me that I was like, oh, that's how normal people do it. Okay. Yeah, but also I, but it's got like, like times that. and all of that. And I'm like, this is way too stressful. Nope. But, stressful. But I know people who that's what they need. 
Um, yeah. And, and I think it's, it's interesting because again, it, it's teaching, teaching that writing class way back and trying to make it more engaging and just thinking about it is, I know I, I went even more radical than that, um, is I did uh, what I called peer-driven learning. And so it was, well, here are the learning outcomes. Here's the textbook we have to use. If you read anything in this textbook, you're gonna meet at least some of these learning outcomes in terms of engaging with, you know, uh, it's, it's one of those ideas classes, right? Um, right. Engaging with just different ideas. So, um, all right. So uh, everyone choose what uh, section of the book you're interested in. And it was like war and peace and human nature and, um, you know, uh, race, race and class and, you know, like the, the broad themes, yeah, right? the together, biggies, the, yeah. the biggies. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of like, if you can't find one section of this book that at least like sparks some of your interest, then I'm, I'm right. like the, the, you know, that's on you kids. Yeah. Like <laughs> right? we're, we're like, let's, you know, if, if, if none of this is interesting to you, like we need to rethink some things about your education right now. Um, well, yeah. So like what you've done there is like you have empowered them to make mm -hmm. choices about their own learning, right? So they, yeah. I, I say to my first year writing students too, like, I can't make you learn anything. Yeah. That's your choice. Like, maybe yeah. you have a private school education and, you know, you wrote the valedictorian speech at your school. Like, that's cool. Some people here are still learning how to speak English, right? So maybe you find yourself at a different skill level or interest level. Maybe some of these techniques you already know, maybe some of them you don't, right? But you can still learn here, but you mm -hmm. have to choose, right? Yeah. I'm going to give lots of different opportunities for people to try different things. And you can say, nope, you know what? I've already learned enough, <laughs> right? And you're probably still going to get an 85. That's great, yeah. right? Or, yeah. or <laughs> like you can choose um, that you want to learn. And in that way, I let the students who consider themselves to be more advanced maybe develop some of their skills of trying hard when they maybe have not had that skill exercised very much before. At the oh, same yeah. time, I indicate um, to my students that are already trying hard that I am there for them. Do you know what I mean? So yep. everybody's going to work on their own level. And I, I think that's a great strategy that you use, like pick something out of this that interests you, right? And then decide what you're, you're going to do. So it's like that kind of yep. flexibility. I think when our courses are built like that now, as you know, transitioning 6,000 courses to online only, people are having to change their plans, yeah. right? Their plans for what they were going to do this semester and how they were going to do it are going to change. And I suspect that the people who are struggling the most with this um, are the people whose plans were very rigid, yeah. right? People have very, very specific expectations of exactly what a particular kind of learning is, right? That it can usually only be demonstrated in one way, right? You know, either through timed synchronous exams or through, you know, a research paper of a certain length or through attendance at all of in-class sessions, right? So people who have designed courses, like with this level of specificity around what constitutes learning and also the right way to learn and the right way to show that you learned it are really like in, in legitimate ideological uh, and intellectual conflict right now because they yeah. legitimately think there's only one way to do this, right? Yeah. But um, I mean, that's not, that kind of rigidity does not allow us to respond to un the unexpected, right? So yeah. if all of your classes have now gone online and some of your students live in different time zones, that like three hour timed exam worth 50% of the final grade is like really not an option for you anymore, right? No. So, you know, I, when I'm designing my assignments, I'm always thinking of how do I give the students the maximum flexibility in producing this work 
but also with enough structure that it doesn't completely bury me or let them fall through the cracks, right? So my final assignment that I had in the course that I was meant to be teaching this semester was a, a portfolio assignment. It was just a reflective thing worth 20%, whereas students were meant to go over all the other things they've already produced in the term, right? It was mm -hmm. more of a synthesis exercise than a you know, show me how everything I've taught you all semester you have just learned. And the substitute teacher who's like teaching this for me right now just was like, well, we're going to cancel that, right? <laughs> You're all very busy. We had two weeks of term left. You were just going to be reflecting, you know, on the work that you've already done. I think you've already all demonstrated your learning, right? Or I have response papers that are due, which is like pick any one of the readings, right? And then write me a 400 word critical response to it. You have to mm -hmm. do one in the first month, one in the second month, one in the third month. I don't care what reading or what week, right? Or what day, just pick one that interests you and get it done, right? So that the, the people don't have to ask me for extensions, right? And it saves me all the trouble of adjudicating extensions because to say you have an entire month to write 400 words is not really that big of an ask, right? And to say like, I am trusting you with the responsibility of finding time this month to write 400 words for me. And I never get people that miss it. I just don't because yeah. my expectation is clear, but my flexibility in how I allow them to fulfill that obligation means that both of us get our needs met. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. No, no, it makes total sense. And I mean, yeah. one of the things that like, so another thing that I did with the peer-driven learning is like, like you said, they could communicate it in any way they could. Like it had to be some sort of engaging activity that they did with the class and then they mm -hmm. had to write a reflection. But one of the reasons why I did that is, is also for my own sanity is I was so tired of reading these uninspired essays, right? right? Where... Yeah. You know, I get it's a writing class, but it was, but it was also an engaged with ideas class. So their essays were always so much better after they did these projects. Right. Because they, they cared. Yeah, they cared and they had engaged with it in, a, in creative and, and insightful and, and ways that were relevant to them. Right. right. Like that was that was the biggest thing. It was ways that they were relevant to them, to their lives, to their experiences. And, you know, they did. And everybody's like, well, what happens if they slacked off? And I did this for three years and I taught a five, four course load. So calculate how many, That's you know, a lot. I know it's a lot. Um, Eleven billion. Yeah, it's a, mm -hmm. and out of out of all. And it was also collaborative. That was the other thing. It was a collaborative right. project. Um and out of all of the sections and all of the groups that had gone, which, you know, there was one out of all of them, one of them where I was like, really? That How was they get a bad more... grade, the end, right? Yeah, but, but, but again, it, but, but out of all of them, most of the time, they far exceeded any expectation that anyone would have possibly had for them and exceeded anything I could have assigned to them. If I had assigned them that thing, they would have not done it, right? Of course. So you treated right. them like grown-ups, right? Oh, yeah. And in turn, they produced something of quality, right? So like literally win-win. They yeah. they took joy, right? Mm -hmm. And pride in producing yep. the things that they produced, which then in turn were much more interesting for yeah. you to read, right? Oh, and, and and watch and, and their peers, their peers were interested in it too, right? They were yeah. like, wow, you're awesome. Yeah. But the, yeah, the I, thing I that... Said... Go ahead. Okay, but the, the the thing that made me the saddest, though, and and it and this is this is the thing that I carry with me, right? This is mm. the thing that I that 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 I carry with me, and and has really informed the work that I do, is that a for the first 
month of the semester, they didn't believe me or trust me that this was literally mm -hmm. what it was going to be. Right. And then two, they were like, this is the first time anyone has ever asked me what I'm interested in and what I want to do. How sad is that? I know, right? Like, oh it's, and they, they were, you know, and, and again, there's a lot of cultural expectations around this. This was when I was teaching in Eastern Kentucky. These were kids who are coming from some of the poorest zip codes, you know, quote unquote, failing schools. Yeah, um, they don't, they don't that. deserve to be creative, right? No. Like, that's kind of like when your education is so bare bones, right? That no one believes that you, you know, have any right to uh, the education you choose for yourself, right? Or that you can make decisions for yourself about what is interesting and what isn't. And no one expects you to be interested in because of the low expectations, right? Well, and they, and it's also just everybody, hook, line, and sinker, has believed in the narrative that um, education is something that's done to you. Absolutely. Right? right? Absolutely. And, well, and that's probably been their experience. Well, it, it it was exactly their experience, but it was also the the you know the the kind of rhetoric that um, you know their parents would have because that's how their parents experienced. Mm -hmm. Like heck, even the teachers themselves, right? right. That yeah. the you know the whole banking model that we're all that we're all in um, to to quote Freire, and that's and that's what set me on the path too. Is that I was teaching Freire, and I was like banking model, it's so bad, blah blah blah. And then one of my students called me out, and I'm like, well, then why are you telling us what we should read? I'm like, oh, no. right. I was like, oh, yeah. yeah, and I was like, yeah, I, I'm not great. Um, I think you mentioned something important there too, though, when you talked about it, it took the students like a month to start to trust you, right? Yeah. And I think actually to develop that trusting relationship, you know, with our students or with our coworkers, or you know, you know, if you want to extend this out to whoever might be listening to us, to develop those relationships of trust means actually that you are much more robustly positioned again mm -hmm. to be flexible. Right. Yeah. So, hey, guys, like school is closed forever. So now we're all going to go online. And if you don't trust that your teacher has your best interests at heart, if you don't trust that your teacher knows anything about the conditions of your life and your learning, that's incredibly anxiety producing. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It makes people freak out and withdraw and panic. But, you know, if your students or your coworkers or your colleagues or, or your family believes that um, you're all in this together right? Mm -hmm. And that you are in it for each other's mutual benefit. And that the person who is like in charge of the changes that are going to happen, if that person you believe has your best interests at heart, truly knows who you are and sees you, then you're much better able to weather the kind of uncertainty that we're all going through right now. You know, yeah. I, I talked to, you know, some university students in my life, like through various family connections and stuff. And, you know, some of them are like, oh, I know this class is going to be okay. But like this class, I don't even know. Right. And it all has to do with the quality of the relationship that they have with the instructor. You know, not like, I think he's a cool guy and I like him and his haircut. Mm -hmm. It's more like I feel seen in that class or he seems to understand what we're going through or he pays a lot of attention to our interest level and stuff. Right. So those human relationships of trust are like, funny is what's going to make or break the shift to online. It's like really not going to be about the quality of the video connection. It's going to oh, be yeah. about the quality of the trust and relationship that already exists between faculty members and students. And all of that has to do with seeing each other in our unique material and intellectual circumstances and extending sort of kindness for the different ways that people need to get things done. Yeah. 
Well, and I think that that actually transitions really nicely until what I, I know you're dying to talk about next week and I'm dying to talk about as well is that, so we talked a lot about trusting students. We've talked a lot about these relationships, but I think one of the more interesting things that has come out of this uh, whole situation as well is um, how do we trust employees, right? Yeah. How are we trusting yeah. our faculty and staff um, yeah. and then treating them under these, uh, you know, uh, under these conditions and yeah and how yeah. that has transferred into um accommodations that people with disabilities have been clamoring for for decades for years, and not yeah, receiving yeah. absolutely absolutely that all has to do with trust and yep. i mean in general when levels of trust go down more rigid systems of surveillance and tracking are enacted right and yep. the more rigid those systems become again, the more brittle they become in situations of crisis, right? Like right now. Yeah. So we're finding yeah. that, you know, those robust relationships of trust and mutual accommodations really can weather quite substantial, major fundamental disruptions. Whereas the like extensive like screen tracking and keystroke logging and sign in sheets and time clocks really do not translate um, at all into this no. new scenario. And, you know, you've spoken before on this podcast about, you know, your social anxiety and social dysphoria. And I'm going to give a shout out to all my pathological demand avoidance peeps, because <laughs> many of us uh, with ADHD and autistic people also have really something quite negative in terms of our reaction to being told that we have to do something. Right. Yes. So yep. that when the, the harder you turn the thumbscrews of obligation, the more we become literally unable to comply. Right? <laughs> so, so for me, these relationships of trust and allowing people to become autonomous and setting their own conditions of work um, or their conditions of learning um, means that you avoid a lot of conflict related to status displays and displays of power and authority, right? Which yeah. are counterproductive, I think, in most learning and workplace environments. That's just Definitely. me though. Yeah. I'm pathologically well, demanding. I'm pathologically avoiding any demands right now. <laughs> well, and I think, but I think we can get into it a little bit more next week because I think that this is a really, again, interesting space we find ourselves in that mm -hmm. we're going to be um, thinking about these. And, and like you said, how do we redesign this for better for students, but I think also for the employees within the system too. Like, how are we going to redesign this together? Universal design is not just for the broken people. It's for no. everybody. That's why exactly. they call it universal. <laughs> well, I think on that thought, um, we'll give that, leave that as a final thought for our listeners and yeah. thank everyone again. And thank you, Amy. Um, thank you. We will be back next week, barring um, anything else going wrong in the world. Uh, well, a squirrel chewed through a transformer on a house next to me today, and yeah. there was a loud explosion and all the electricity went out. So if that doesn't happen next week, I will be back. <laughs> Excellent. Looking forward to it. You take care this week, okay? You too. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. -bye. Bye.